Alabama Annie with another episode of Stories and Songs for you. And I'm digging way, way back into my audio files for some stories I recorded several years ago and haven't been able to use yet. So the format will be a little different, but the stories and songs are the same. I hope you enjoy it and we'll check in again. Owl's Hollow Road. Every little town has its legends and tales of scary places. Old, empty houses with rusty screen doors, overgrown graveyards beside shadowed, winding roads where a body can go for a fright and a thrill on a dark fall night around Halloween. Not that these places aren't just as eerie almost any night of the year, but there's something about autumn when the leaves have fallen from the trees and rattle along sidewalks and streets like dry bones and the bare limbs of trees reach like arms into the night. Owl's Hollow Road is one of those places where people go for a good scare. The road winds north and out of town between historic Lookout Mountain and Shinbone Ridge with the tracks of the old Tag Railroad beside it, long unused. Sidetracked boxcars sit tilted and rotting, covered in vines and undergrowth, shadowed by the bare limbs of gnarled, ancient trees. About a half a mile from where the road begins sit the old brickyards, long abandoned. The old, empty buildings sits like the scroll of some ancient effigy at the foot of the mountain, its windows staring like eyes. Beyond that, Along a sideline where the old boxcars sit sat an old railroad house, dilapidated and empty, save a few pieces of broken furniture, shattered glass bottles, and rats. Back in 1910, Maggie Quinn's boarding house was wide open. Railroad men from the tag line and the brickyards lived there. The house had once been painted green, as was the tradition to indicate that the place had an open-door policy, with the bedrooms in the back where the men slept or carried on with Maggie or one of her girls. It was a rough-and-tumble place where the kitchen was always open and the poker game never ended. Moonshine whiskey flowed from the stills on Shinbone Ridge like water from a spring. More than once, a card game turned nasty. A man was accused of cheating, and a fight broke out. The table and chairs were overturned in the scuffle, and a whiskey bottle shattered on the floor. Guns were drawn, and a man fell mortally wounded, crawling out the door and off the porch to the edge of the road and died, lying face down in the gravel. Clutched in his hand was a torn playing card. It was the Ace of Spades. One fall night in the 1960s, Johnny Williams was driving home along Owl's Hollow Road, returning from the farmer's market with a truckload of big orange pumpkins and dry corn to decorate the school for the Halloween carnival. As he drove along, listening to a Buddy Holly song on the AM radio, his headlights fell upon something lying at the side of the road. It looked like a man. He slowed the truck to get a closer look, wary of tricks since Halloween was only a week away. Thinking it might be some prankster who would, upon his investigation, leap to his feet and scare the farmer. At first he thought of driving on, but then, as he drew even with it, he knew that this was no prank. 
the man laid face down at the side of the road. There were bloodstains on the back of his white shirt. He pulled the truck to a halt, opened the door, and stepped out, looking around the dark woods. Moving cautiously toward the man, Hey, pal, you okay? He called, but the man didn't move. Johnny edged closer, bending over the man. He saw that the man was dressed in old-fashioned clothes, a white cotton shirt that looked as though it had been hand-sewn. He wore brown serge pants, leather suspenders, and a pair of boots like the ones he remembered his father wearing. The man's face was hidden from view, his brown hair covered in leaves and twigs. There was dried blood on the man's back, and the farmer could see that the man had been shot in the back. One of his arms lay at his side, and the other extended out up beyond his shoulders, his hand clutching a playing card. The farmer reached down and tugged the card from the cold hand. It was an old-style playing card, broad and wide. It was the ace of spades. Somewhere off the road, a tree branch snapped, and the farmer peered out into the darkness, standing like a target as he was in the headlights of the truck. He backed away from the body, still holding the card, and moved for the truck. He should go for the sheriff. He knew that a crime had been committed here. The farmer got in the truck and closed the door, made a wide U-turn in the road, and headed back for the highway. With any luck, he would find the sheriff and his deputy at the diner. He pulled into the parking lot of the diner and spied the black and white 58 Ford parked beside the neon sign. He got out and walked into the diner, nodding to several friends as he moved toward the counter where Sheriff Dooley and Deputy Hall sat with steaming cups of hot coffee. Johnny Williams interrupted their conversation and told them about what he had seen, passing the card to the Sheriff Dooley, who looked at it curiously and finished off his coffee. He and the deputy followed Johnny back onto Owl's Hollow to the spot where the body lay. They could clearly see drag marks and even the imprint of the man's body itself. But the man was gone. In the headlights of the truck and car, they searched the surrounding wood line and the ditch, looking for any signs of the body. Confused, Johnny explained how he had come to find the man, telling the sheriff and deputy about the odd way the man had been dressed, the gunshot wound to his back, and, of course, finding the ace of spades clutched in the man's hand. The sheriff pulled the card from his shirt pocket, remarking that they didn't make cards like that anymore. He suggested they search further, and the farmer and deputy followed him off the side of the road and across the abandoned railroad tracks to the run-down old house. Using their flashlights, they stepped across the rickety porch and through the open door into what used to be the parlor of Maggie Quinn's boarding house. A rat scurried across the room as Johnny's flashlight beam flashed across an overturned table and chairs. On the floor, amid broken glass and dry bone leaves, lay playing cards, long unused and covered in dust. The deputy knelt and picked up a card lying face down on the floor. The men compared this card to the one Johnny had found clutched in the man's hand. They were the same. In the flashlight's beam, the sheriff spied a blood stain on the floor beside an overturned chair and blood spatters leading along the floor to the door. The man had left a trail. 
It was clear to the men that whatever had taken place here had happened a long time ago. Perplexed and a little disturbed by it all, the three left the house, crossed the tracks again, and returned to their cars. Sheriff Dooley told Johnny Williams that he'd let him know if he found out anything and the men parted ways. Johnny drove home and the sheriff and deputy returned to the diner for another cup of java. That night when their shift was over, Sheriff Dooley arrived home, kissed his babies and his wife goodnight, put on his bathrobe and slippers and sat a while beside the fire. He had seen some strange things in his time along Files Hollow Road, disturbing things that stayed in his head like scenes from a bad movie or like the heartburn he'd get when he ate his mother's egg salad. Dooley had become sheriff in 1948, only a few years after he had returned from the war against the Nazis, and he assumed he'd never see things like he saw in Germany again. But he'd been wrong. He was always chasing teenagers out of the secluded places along that road and, of course, along the Coosa River where they went to park and party. He'd catch kids cruising the roads, naked girls in the back seats of their daddy's cars doing the nasty with their boyfriends, listening to Big Bobby Fry spinning the latest hits on the radio, drunkest skunks on cheap wine and whiskey from bootleggers puking their brains out in the bushes and begging him not to tell. But sometimes those kids got into trouble. It took Sheriff Dooley the longest time to get a good night's sleep again after the axe murders. In 1956, after the homecoming game between two big high school rivals, he'd been the unlucky one to find Kathy Krill and Bobby Jenkins dead in their convertible, both decapitated by what appeared to be from the blows of an axe. He would never forget the homecoming king still wearing his leather jacket, now covered in blood, and the queen in her prom dress, a string of pearls still hanging around the stump of her neck, and the blood, so much blood. He'd been the one to deliver the awful news to the families of the two, the one to oversee the awful removal of their bodies in the investigation. Although the crime had never been solved and the murderer never found, there had been occasional sightings along Owl's Hollow Road by passerbys of a man walking along the side of the road dragging an axe. He had always suspected the man to be one of the Lim brothers. Two men belonging to a family of inbred, backwoods hillbillies living off on Shinbone Ridge, but he could never prove it. And then there had been the hanging in the old church. The body of the preacher had been found by some frightened teenagers out riding the road late one night who had come racing to find him. The preacher had hung himself after a scandal about an affair he had had with a young girl in the church. The sheriff had been the one to take the body down from where it swung at the end of a rope slung over the rafters. Again, Sheriff Dooley couldn't sleep after he had gone to bed. Even after he got up again and drank a glass of warm milk, and ate some pound cake. So, he sat at the kitchen table, fingering that playing card, the Ace of Spades. He looked at it closely in the light. It was indeed an old card, wax-coated and yellowed with age, clearly a part of the deck of cards on the floor of the old house that searched. He recalled a story he had heard, a story about an unsolved murder at Maggie's place. 
he decided that he would look through some of the old files at the station house where he went on duty in the morning. First thing, he pulled some dusty old file boxes from the back room of the jail and brought them out to his desk. He spent the morning looking through them, and just when he thought he wasn't going to find anything, he found a file labeled, Owl's Hollow Murder, Unsolved. He opened the folder and adjusted his glasses. Dooley began to read. The crime occurred on October 13, 1910, at a property on Owl's Hollow Road. A Miss Maggie Quinn, owner and operator of a boarding house for workers of the Tag Railroad and Lookout Brickworks. According to witness accounts of Miss Quinn, one Martha Pettis, yardman Billy Wells, a hobo known locally as Texas John, and two Tag Railroad employees, brakeman Jesse A. Bell of Rome, Georgia, engineer Jimmy Lee Bonds of Cleveland, Ohio, engaged in a friendly game of poker in the parlor of the boarding house around 10 p.m. that night. According to Quinn and Pettis, Billy Wells accused Texas John of cheating. Jumping up from the table and shoving John out of his chair to the floor, where according to Brakeman Bell and Bonds, John came up from the floor, shoving Wells against the wall. In the scuffle, the table was overturned. Bonds Pettis, Quinn, and Bell saw Wells pull a pistol from his jacket and fire a shot into the air. At the sound of the shot, according to Quinn, the room was quickly cleared except for Texas John and Wells. Texas John turned his back to Wells, moving away from the overturned table toward the front door as Wells fired again, hitting the hobo in the back. According to Quinn, Texas John stumbled out the door onto the porch and kept going off into the dark, and Wells, still holding the pistol, raced into the kitchen, out the back door, and was never seen again. The other men set off after him but could not find Wells. But just at that moment, the 1019 train to Rome was just passing through, and it was assumed Wells jumped into a boxcar and got away. Bonds and Bell took a lantern and went to find Texas John and located him where he had fallen face down at the edge of the road, just past the tracks. Bell took a horse and rode to find the constable and returned with him at 12.50 a.m., and the crime was investigated. Constable Ross conducted interviews with all those present, examined the crime scene, and had his men remove the body of the hobo, Texas John, to the morgue. Railroad detectives were contacted by telephone to detain Billy Wells at Rome, Georgia, but he was never seen again. Astounded by what he had just read, Sheriff Dooley reached into his shirt pocket and pulled that ace of spades out again. He looked at it, shaking his head. This had to be the strangest thing he had ever seen. He picked up the phone and dialed Johnny Williams. Johnny, this is Sheriff Dooley. Sit down. You're not going to believe this. For those of you who are familiar with Alabama poet Andy Deason, his is the voice you heard on Alice Hollow Road, and I think it lent a lot to the story. See you next time.